Great to be with you today and to open God's word with you. I'd like to ask you to turn with me to Psalm 110. If you're new with us today, welcome. My name is David Cassidy and I'm the lead pastor here at Spanish River Church. It's always a joy to open the scriptures and see what God would say to us and I hope I can greet many of you personally afterwards. We're wrapping up a series today, a summer series we've been doing on the Psalms. The specific Psalms are those that prophesy to us about the coming of the Messiah. Of course, the life of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, the person of Jesus is written into every single word, every single letter of the entire Bible. There are certain sections, however, which uh, stand out and which tell us directly exactly who he is and how the Messiah is meant to come. And Psalms are exactly in that way. Uh, Psalm 2, prophesying about Jesus' resurrection. Same with Psalm 16. Psalm 22 tells us about his suffering. Psalm 40, about how the Lord formed a body for him to come into the world. And we turn to Psalm 110 now. And we have before us what we need to be reminded of is, like all the other Psalms, the lyric of a song. And it's a song that Jesus sang himself, and it's a passage that Jesus quoted. Music, of course, is central to uh, the scriptures. We're looking at Psalms, the very middle of the Bible. It's the biggest book in the Bible. And in some ways, that's really not at all surprising. You and I have music as such a huge and important part of our life. Uh, we all sort of probably have a soundtrack that's going on that's part of our story. Uh, some of you this summer, your, your uh, soundtrack may be Shake It Off. Eight of you, okay. Some, of the, some, some folks may just be with Let It Be, and, and some people may have a testimony that goes all the way back to Jailhouse Rock. But um, it's important for us to have the lyrics of the songs of the Savior here in our heart. And they are to be remembered and cherished and treasured by us above all else. I, I used to love to go to the British Museum in London when, when we lived there and I would go to the autograph section, it had famous letters and books and so on, and also famous pieces of music. And there under a great glass case was the original copy of Handel's Messiah, handwritten. There's all the notes, everything. It's a giant, huge book that was Handel's Messiah. And I would just go and stand in front of it hoping to pick up some kind of residual grace from it, you know. It was so beautiful and lovely, one of my favorite pieces of music, of course. But then one day I went in, and under the same glass case was a piece of scratch paper, uh, handwritten again, just like Handel's Messiah, but on it, were, uh, yester on it was the, were the lyrics, yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away, now I long for yesterday. And I thought, well, okay, the Beatles, Handel, ah, I don't know. But they are, of course, examples of two kinds, very different kinds of music, but great in their own way. But there is nothing greater, there is no lyric greater than the song of the Savior, Psalm 110. It is one of these many messianic psalms, and it is the most quoted passage from the Old Testament in the New Testament. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament in the New Testament is revealed. And we find Christ and the apostles 
quoting Psalm 110 over and over again. The most quoted passage from the entire Old Testament in the New. So obviously it's of great importance. It shows up with Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, one of many places where some people were coming at Jesus and trying to trap him with clever questions. Can I just suggest to you that trying to trick God with clever questions, never your best move, but that's what they were doing. And so they come with their questions, and Jesus says, well, I have a question for you. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they answered, the son of David. And so he said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And then it goes on to say, after that, nobody asked him any more questions. Probably a wise approach. Jesus quotes Psalm 110, and he says, in this Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, and he calls that Lord, he calls that Lord Messiah. Whose son is he? Well, okay, he's the son of David. How can he be both David's son and David's Lord? And this verse tells us that Jesus looks at Psalm 110 and he says this is a portrait of who he is. Peter picks up on this as well. In his preaching on the day of Pentecost, he quotes from this and he talks about Jesus being seated at the Father's right hand until all the enemies are placed beneath his feet. Therefore, let the whole house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The writer of Hebrews goes through the entire Old Testament, drawing out these great figures like Abraham and Moses, the priests of, that were descended from Aaron, even the angels of God. And he's at pains to show the supremacy of Jesus. And he says, to which of the angels, this is Hebrews chapter one, did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Again, quoting Psalm 110. Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 15. And he talks about, and we read this verse last week, the coming of the kingdom when Jesus returns. And he says it's at that point that death will be destroyed and God will place all the enemies beneath his feet and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Death itself. So every single foe that arrays itself against the Lord, against his people, down to death itself, will ultimately be subjected to the rule of Christ. And all of that is spoken of here based in Psalm 110. It's a battle hymn. It's a song that's not only celebrating the coronation of the king, it's a song that says the king leads us out to do his will in tremendous conflict. But of course, while in the Old Testament, they would have thought of the conflict being rooted with other people. We know, as Paul writes in Ephesians 6, that our battle is not with flesh and blood. Our battle is with principalities and powers, spiritual forces of darkness. And Christians find themselves opposed by dark forces. But every one of these forces will be brought beneath the sway of King Jesus, and death itself will be no more. How can we know that? Uh, how can we take the Lord at his word on that? Psalm 110, let's read it. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, open our hearts to your word and send to us the same Holy Spirit that first inspired David to write these words. And for them, we thank you. Help us to treasure them, to hide them in our hearts, to let this lyric be the song of our souls. And we pray this in Jesus' matchless name, amen. Martin Luther took 123 pages in his writing on the Psalms. It was his longest exposition of any passage of the Bible to help us understand Psalm 110. This beautiful Psalm, he said, is the core of the whole of Scripture. No other prophesies as abundantly and completely of Christ, and it portrays the entire kingdom. It's divided into two sections. It's got 74 Hebrew words in both sections. And in the first, it opens with the Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So it's a Psalm of David, and he sees Yahweh speak to Adonai, speak to the Messiah, and say, you're the king, and all the enemies are gonna be subjected to you. The second stanza begins down in, in verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus, it says in this text, and the way it's quoted in the New Testament, is seated at God's right hand. And if you grew up in a creedal church, as I did, and we still say the creeds on occasion here, you will have said about Jesus Christ, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again, and he was seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And so this seating at the right hand of God is what happens to Christ in his ascension. Jesus not only dies on the cross, to bear the penalty for our sin, then rises on the third day. He then spends 40 days instructing his followers about the kingdom and then rises to the right hand of the Father and from there he pours out the Holy Spirit. And so you and I are living in the period of time when Christ is at the right hand of the Father and he is reigning as king and ministering as a priest and that helps us understand the time in which we live. Look what it says. It says, rule in the midst of your enemies. Sometimes people think the kingdom is postponed. The kingdom of God is something that only happens at the end of history. But the kingdom is a present reality. Jesus is king, and he's king now. Matthew chapter 28 says, Jesus, we hear Jesus saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority, it belongs to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. So the kingdom is a present reality and Christ is reigning now. But of course, many people could say, well, Jesus, have you seen my life? 
Have you seen the disorder? Have you seen the sorrows that have come upon me? Have you seen the trials that we all face? It doesn't seem that you're doing a very good job as king of the cosmos right now. We long for the day, we long for the day when the kingdom reaches its fullness, when it comes in all of its fullness, when Jesus comes again. But that's why that little word, until. Sit at my right hand until your enemies are made a footstool for your feet. So Jesus is king now, and you and I are living in that until space, until all the enemies. And what's the last enemy to be defeated? Again, it's, it's death. So we live between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. We live between Jesus on the cross saying, it is finished, and Jesus in the book of Revelation saying, it is done. And that means right now we face all kinds of enemies. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The psalmist in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside quiet waters and green pastures and so on. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You and I are surrounded by enemies. Jesus told us in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. You will have a lot of trouble. I think there are people who believe that because they are Christians, they will not face difficulty. They will not. How many of you have been a Christian for longer than three weeks and found out that wasn't true? <laughs> and look, they can be on a scale of kind of minor annoyance, like a flat tire, to, to real catastrophe, the collapse of a business, a marriage ending, a child wandering away from the faith, a, a, a diagnosis that says you don't have long to live, the sudden death of someone you love. All of these are catastrophic traumas that we experience. And we go, Lord, where are you? In this world you will have. It's a promise. Most people don't talk about that as a promise. In this world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer, Jesus continued though. I have overcome the world. I am reigning. I am ruling. I am your king. And not only am I reigning as your king, I am interceding for you as your priest. You see, that's the second stanza. Verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what does it mean for us that Christ is both king and priest? Well, let me give you just a, a few things that Christ is king and priest this morning. First of all, Jesus governs all things in our lives. There is no aspect of our existence which is outside the sovereignty of his will that does not enjoy the extension of the scepter that comes from his throne. When John is caught up into heaven, he sees the lion of the tribe of Judah. Come, I'll show you the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I looked and behold, he says, here's looking at the king, a lamb, a lamb standing as if slain. At the center of the throne of the whole universe is not a despot, not a tyrant, but a servant who came to lay his life down for us, who loved us, who didn't strut like an emperor. He stooped as a slave and washed our feet. He died a slave's death on the cross. Why did he die there? 
He didn't die simply to set us a good example for suffering. It was a, if, it, if all Jesus did was bring an example, we would know nothing but dismay because none of us can live up to his example. No, Jesus comes and he lives a life of perfect righteousness as our king. And then, unlike every other earthly ruler who said, go and die for me so that my kingdom, my empire can grow, Christ the king dies for us and says, enter my kingdom. And so this great king who loves us to life, rules us, governs us, every aspect of our lives, and he brings his word. This is the scepter of his truth. You sang a few minutes ago, I'll take you at your word. The Roman centurion said to Jesus, just say the word and my servant will be healed. But too often we are more like the serpent in the Garden of Eden who said to Eve, has God said? Instead of saying with Isaiah, forever your word is settled in heaven. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Jesus said, and this is why you sang on Christ the solid rock, the wise man hears my word and acts on it. He will build his house on the rock. And then when the rain comes and the wind blows and the storm arrives, because the wind and the storm, the hurricane blast does come. When that happens, Jesus doesn't say, if you follow me, you will escape it. No, he says it will happen. It will burst against your house, but the house won't fall. Why? Because his word is at the foundation. Everything else is sinking sand. Let me just tell you, right now, one of the most important decisions you can make in your life is quite simply whether or not you're going to live under the authority of God's word or exalt yourself over it. Whether or not you're going to let the scripture read you or whether or not you are simply going to read the scripture. Whether or not you are going to judge whether or not the scriptures are valuable or whether or not you will let the scriptures penetrate your own soul and transform you. As long as you approach the word of God as if it is full of optional extras on a menu you can choose from rather than the word of the sovereign king, you won't be approaching the scriptures rightly. We are those who live at the beckoning and the command of our king. Jesus governs all and he governs every aspect of our life. And because he died for us, because he rose again, because he's at the right hand of the Father, we can be sure that whatever trials, whatever temptations, whatever troubles and sorrows we endure here. And Christians have suffered many. Many of you have suffered terrible ordeals. Whatever we go through, Christ is with us in those sorrows. Here's the second thing. Jesus forgives, protects, and perfects us. And that comes into this whole thing about being a priest. You are a priest, he says, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, what is that? What's even going on with all that? Well, remember, this is a battle anthem. It's a battle anthem. And this is referring back to another battle. It's one that Abraham had. His, his nephew Lot had been captured 
And Abraham brought a small army and he went to rescue his nephew Lot. He redeemed him, he got him out of that captivity. And when he did, when victory was his in that conflict, he went to see a man in the book of Genesis, it's in chapter 14, who is described as the priest of God Most High, Melchizedek, Melka, King, Zedek, righteousness, the king of righteousness. Now the king of righteousness, Melchizedek, Melchizedek, he was the king of a city, a city called Salem or Shalom. It's the ancient site of Jerusalem. He was the king of righteousness and the king of Shalom, the king of peace. King of righteousness, king of peace. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. And so what the psalmist says here is that our king is also a priest. When Abraham came to him, it says that Melchizedek brought out to him, wait for it, bread and wine. He served him bread and wine. My friends, you have a great king who serves you bread and wine. He brings you blessing, and the scriptures say that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And it is this priesthood that Jesus brings to us, the priesthood that belongs to the rule of Christ in his ascension. Now, why does he do that? Well, in Hebrews chapter seven, you can follow along on this, Hebrews chapter seven, verse 11, and then verses 17 through 25. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? And then he goes on to talk about how these Old Testament sacrifices could never make anybody perfect. So a new savior had to come, a new lamb that would lay down his life. And then in verse 17, it is witnessed of him, talking about Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's Psalm 110. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. All the ironic priesthood, all those sacrifices, they could postpone the punishment. They could never perfect the worshipers. They were always given it in anticipation of the Messiah, of the Savior who would one day come. Of the one that John the Baptist, when he saw him, said, behold, not a lamb, but behold what? The lamb. Behold, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And this priesthood, Jesus says, or, or the scriptures say about Jesus, was, came to him not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, everybody's always looking for a priest. Everybody's always looking for somebody who they think is closer to God than they are. Because we, we, tend to, we tend to have a kind of sense that we're not really as close with the Lord as we should be. We have a great need. We want somebody to pray with us. Who can I get to pray with me? I know if I could just get Brian Herring, Matt Wilson, they, those guys, they're close. They're close. Me, long distance call. So I gotta get those guys. I'll get those guys. They're real tight. But you don't need another human priest. You have the apostle and the high priest. You have Christ himself, and he is interceding for you. These former priests 
were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever, because Christ lives forever. All the other priests died off. This priest has died and risen again, and he will never, ever cease his priestly activity at the Father's right hand. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost or save completely those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives, look at this, to make intercession for them. What is Christ doing at the right hand of the Father? Well, he's reigning as king. Okay, I got that. What else is he doing? He's interceding for you as your priest. What is he doing? He is presenting his blood that he shed, his own blood, not the blood of another lamb. He's the lamb. He presents his blood, and he says, this blood is more than enough for the sins of my people. He is interceding for you. He is crying out to God on your behalf. He's the one mediating your prayers. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. Our prayers and our worship are always imperfect, but they ascend and they come to God and they're perfected. How? Because they pass through his hand. Jesus filters them. He mediates them. He perfects them. And one day, we will all stand before God. And can I ask you a question? Are you, when you stand before God, going to be imperfect or perfect? Well, you'll be perfect. How did you get that way? In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when death is swallowed up, we'll be changed. Until that day, Christ is interceding for you. He is representing you before the Father. You are clothed in his righteousness. Christ is in you, and you are in Christ. You are seated with him in heavenly places. When God looks at Christ, he sees you. When he sees you, he sees Christ. He's your representative on high. His intercession, by the way, when Jesus prays, that intercession is heard and answered. There was a time when Jesus came to Peter. Peter was particularly self-confident. He said, if everybody else betrays you, if everybody else leaves you, I won't. Peter had a lot of self-confidence. And, uh, and, and, and Jesus said, Peter, before this night is over, you'll deny me three times. Peter, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. Um, now, what does that even mean? Well, in, in the ancient world, if they had wheat that they'd brought in from the harvest, the way they sifted that was they would put it in a, a big instrument with a, with a kind of sieve on the bottom, and they would toss the wheat up in the air, and the wind would separate out the wheat from the chaff. The chaff would get blown over here. That would be burned up with fire, and then the wheat's preserved. So you just kept tossing it up in the air, just tossing it and tossing it and tossing it. So so Jesus comes over to Peter. He says, hey, Peter, Satan has desired to toss your life up in the air and just keep tossing it. He's just gonna make a complete mess out of your life. Now, can I just tell you that if Jesus came up to me and said, David, Satan has desired to toss your life up in the air and make it a total disaster, I would have said to Jesus, well, I hope you said no. <laughs> that isn't what Jesus said. He did not say that. He said, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, to toss your life up in the air. But, this is Luke 22, but I have prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And when you are returned, strengthen your brothers. And Peter failed. 
Jesus didn't say, I've prayed for you, Peter, so that you won't fail. We all fail. The apostle John wrote and he said, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. But then he quickly follows with, with, but if any of you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous one. He's our advocate on high. He's our representative. He's the one praying for us. He's the one interceding for us. He doesn't say, Peter, you won't fail. Listen, friends, we're, we are failures. We, we still sin. Do I need to ask for a show of hands of everybody who sinned this week? I'm preaching this, like John said, I've written these things to you so that you won't sin. I could say, I'm preaching this so you won't sin this week. <laughs> but if we get together next week, what do we know? We'll have blown it in the coming week. This is why I start my morning devotions every day by prepenting. I just say, Lord, I'm awake. If I'm breathing, I'm sinning. You know, Lord, I'm a mess. Please have mercy on me, Jesus. Please have mercy on me, Lord. He's interceding for you. Peter, I've prayed for you so that your faith won't fail. He doesn't say, Peter, I pray for you that you won't fail. He says, I'm praying for you that your what? Your faith won't fail. See, your faith today may be weak, but it is not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. It's the strength of the object of your faith. It's the strength of Christ. It's not the grip you have on Jesus. It's the grip Jesus has on you. He will not let you go. He is your high priest. He is interceding for you. And what does that mean? It means, lastly, that Jesus will demolish death. Death has no hold on us. It says that he must reign, and he serves as a priest until all the enemies are under his feet. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be defeated is death. Every single one of us will face death unless we live until Jesus returns. And we don't know, he said, well, I don't know when that day is gonna be. And we don't. There's lots of people who think they do. If you ever get, you know, you see one of those things that come in the mail or you get something, you see it in a, in a bookstore or whatever, this is the day that Jesus is coming back. Mark down the date, go home, circle it on your calendar. Not that day. <laughs> Nobody knows the day or the hour. But you know what? That's also true about death, isn't it? None of us know the day or the hour. We don't know how long we have to live. Jesus said the, sec the day of his return is known to the Father only. But the day of our death is also known to God. All of our days are written in his book when as yet there was not one of them, the psalmist says in 139. The Lord knows our days. They're in his book. We don't know how long we're gonna live. The only issue is this. We need to know that we are Christ's in life and in death. He is reigning now as our king and he is interceding for us as our priest. And in the end, death in its timid, weak claim on us, even that will be overthrown fully and finally when Jesus raises us from the dead. He is the king who reigns. He is the priest who intercedes. And you and I live in the space called until. Sit at my right hand Say it with me, until. We, leave, we live between it is finished and it is done until. And here's what I know about until. Until is gonna be filled with trouble. Until will be filled with temptation. Until will be filled with joys and sorrows. Until will be filled with the progress of the gospel in many places and the regress of the gospel in some. 
But in the end, the whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In the end, we will be raised from the dead. In the end, even though our bodies have suffered terribly, we will be raised incorruptible. In the end, we live until. What do we do in that space? Remember, this is a battle hymn. You're in a fight. You may not have signed up for it. That's fine. But he says, my people will volunteer freely in the day of my power. What is the day of his power? When Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand, he poured out the Holy Spirit. Jesus said you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We live in the age of the Holy Spirit. The until age is the age of the Holy Spirit. And every single one of us can volunteer freely now to be part of God's army of mercy and love and grace in the world. There are enemies, but none of us are called to fight alone. And there is no draft, and there are no mercenaries, but every single one of us can volunteer and offer ourselves freely in the day of his power. And then he goes on to say in Psalm 110, the youth are to thee like the dew. The youth. God's after young people. He's after old people. He's after middle-aged people. And say, but what will it cost me to follow Jesus? To volunteer. That sounds like a costly enterprise. Pastor, you should just be glad I'm here. You should just be glad I'm listening to you at all. It's not that good. Don't worry, I've only got a few more seconds. It's all right. You should just be glad I showed up. You're asking me to volunteer? No, Christ is calling you to volunteer. And it may cost you everything. The great missionary to Ecuador and martyr, Jim Elliott, however, said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep your life to gain what you cannot lose, the kingdom. Friends, Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy. Do not hesitate to present your life before the king who reigns, the priest who intercedes. And while we live between the first and second coming, offer yourself to him. Say, Lord, I'm yours. I'll do whatever you ask of me. Stand with me and let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are reigning at the Father's right hand. And you are doing that until all the enemies are made a footstool for your feet. And so, Lord, we pray that you will continue to pour out your spirit. And now, in this day of your power, we present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice. We offer our whole lives to you, Jesus. We say with the old hymn, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. We see you, Lion of the tribe of Judah, our great king. You are also at the center of the throne, a lamb. You are the king who has given your life so that we could be forgiven. And we pray that any here who do not yet know Jesus and don't know the, the forgiveness of sins would come to you in faith. And we pray this in your matchless name. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together.